You're listening to the Sunday podcast from LifePoint Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Grab a Bible, open it up to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. Luke 16. We are in a new series that we just started called, Where Do We Go, or What is Truth? And this morning's message is, Where Do We Go From Here? And I mentioned briefly last week at the end of the series called Compelled, which was Compelled to Trust God, I mentioned this idea that we we are living in a culture where it is so difficult to find truth, right? How do I know what is true? For every article that I find that says something is bad, like coffee, those are obviously articles from the demons, but that say coffee is bad, I can find another few articles that say that's wonderful and it adds years to your life. Um, For everyone, you remember, uh, this one's been flip-flopping for a while, but eggs are bad for you for cholesterol, so we only ate the egg white, and that's what all of us healthy people did. I say us, like I'm still healthy. And then they said, oh no, you actually want to eat the yolks, it's good for you. And so then we all started eating the yolks, because it's good for us. And it is so tough to say what is actually real, what is truth. And when you read stuff online that are in line with your predetermined biases, and here's the deal with that, the marketers and the big tech companies have gotten so good at knowing what your preconceived biases are, you get mail and ads and on social media the feeds that match with what you already believe in. Isn't that nice of them? Isn't that wonderful? Nobody? Nope. You don't, you don't find that the least bit creepy? That you could be talking about something that you've never researched on the internet ever, and then you open up a social media platform and there's an ad for it? Right? So you know that you're not going to find articles that cause you to critically think against your position easily unless you go out and search them. And so there comes this question, well, what is truth? And currently in our culture, the idea of truth is so muddled and we are so divided and so mixed up that it's hard to know how am I to be a Christian in this current economy. I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but I also know I'm supposed to stand up for truth. I know I'm supposed to go to church and and all of that, but I'm also supposed to listen to my government. But I don't want my government to overstep their bounds and end up in a position where I can no longer go to my church. And so do I do something? Do I become an activist? Do I speak out? Do I keep quiet? Do I, right? Am I hitting any of your nerves that you've had going on for the last few weeks? And so I want to do, address some of these things over the next few weeks. And where do we go from here? John 18, 38, the very first part of it is Pilate with Jesus, and Jesus has just told Pilate, I am the truth. And Pilate says the famous line, what is truth, right? And then he walks out and addresses the Pharisees and all the people who are gathered there who are yelling, crucify him. Here's the thing, he's not saying what is truth, like he's actually pondering the theological depth of what Jesus just told him. I think maybe sometimes it's been presented as that, but that's not what he's doing. He's not like, yes, what is truth? You know what he's saying? He's walking out saying, what is truth? You see, he has just finished questioning him and saying, are you bringing a kingdom to this world? Jesus says, yes. So you're a king then? Well, no. I'm not a king in the sense of your Caesar, but I am a king in the sense that I have a kingdom that I'm bringing. You see, it's difficult, Pilate. 
But you must understand, my kingdom is not here to overthrow Rome, it's to overthrow sin for all mankind. And so what Pilate, when he says what is truth, what he's really interested in is, are you going to take away my power? Are you here to take away my power or Rome's power? This is what Pilate is asking. And this is what every single one of us are asking ourselves in this current climate. Are you taking away my power of choice? Are you taking away my power to worship freely? Are you taking away my power to make money? Are you taking away my power? What is truth? And so, to give you a brief background, Christianity and government has never really worked well. Have you looked at that? You see, when Constantine really made it famous around 300 and he brought and sort of made Christianity, it was already spread throughout Rome. But when, when he made it the, the religion and then started to enforce it on people by death, you sort of lose the heart of Christianity, you know? When you tell people to listen to Jesus or die, you, you lose the heart of it. Because here's what Jesus is doing. When we see him with Pilate, we see him with the most immense power you could ever have, and he lays it down. He lays his power down, and he uses his power to serve and to care for others. That's going to be important later on. And so this is what he tells his disciples to do. Here, you now have my power. Go and share who I am and what I've done. And I will give you signs so that people will know that you're from me. You will be able to heal. You'll be able to prophesy. You'll be able to give words of knowledge. But go in my power. And when you use the power that I have given you, give it all away. Don't keep it for yourself. You never hear of the disciples laying hands on themselves. Do you? Right? Paul gets bit by the snake and he's not like, it's okay. There it is. Gone. They use it for others. The power of God is given to us to give away just as Christ modeled on the cross to give it away. But a nation cannot afford to do that. A nation must keep its power so it can then keep its people in control. And so when Christianity comes into a nation and gets enacted as a law, we are completely going against how God designed to set up His kingdom. Because now we have to force people to do things because they're good and they're right and just trust us. It'll be good for you. And don't you love that when people tell you that? Well, trust us. It'll be fine for you. And so Christianity and government has notoriously gone bad and turned into violence and rebellion and overstep. And it has mocked the kingdom of God rather than increased the kingdom of God. One of the things that was so beautiful about America when it was founded is it was founded by men who believed in God, who believed in Jesus Christ, and yet they also believed in the ability of free speech, free property rights, uh, freedom and liberty in general. And so even though they stood on a foundation of Christ as they established this country, they allowed others, at least in writing, to also be able to speak whatever they want to speak. And it was really unheard of. It was crazy. People thought, of course it's going to fail. They're trying to run by this democracy where there's not a head, there's not a king or a dictator or somebody determined as, as the all-knowing, all-powerful one that everyone has to look to. They're trying to run it through a group of people, this democracy. 
And I believe for so long, that's why our country did so well. Obviously, the hand of God was on this country as it was a young country and growing up. And then we hit a point in certain seasons throughout our history where we started to enact Christian truths and make them law. And then people don't like that, and it got pushed back on heavily. And then we come to sort of where we're at now, 2021, where we're in a place where we not only don't want to hear about Christ and his truths and the way of life and everything Christianity brings, we actively want to do everything that opposes it. We hate it. You know, when Christianity first was established, right? It was so appealing, and the reason Rome was taken over by it, not because the leader took it over first, but because people saw the conservative nature of the family. See, it was both conservative and liberal Christianity. There was a conservative idea around sex and marriage and uh, family, and then there were liberal crazy ideas like women weren't property. Crazy. Right? And this is what the Christians were saying, that they have value. She's created in the image of God. And so there's these crazy things, but then people begin to see it lived out, and they begin to see kindness and selfless, uh, selflessness and be able to see people share their stuff willingly, not because the government's telling them to share it. They're just giving it away willingly so that others may have what they have. And the nation saw this, and the world began to see this, and people said, well, I want that. I want that in my life. And for a long time, people have wanted the results of the Christian faith without submitting their knee to the king. And when a country tries to take the results of the Christian faith and make it law without people first submitting their knee to the king, it becomes tyranny. It becomes Christian nationalism. If you've studied the events that happened in the 30s and 40s with Germany and the Nazis, you will see that in the German state church, there was a sense of Christian nationalism. That's actually how uh, they were able to get to power so easily and influence so many people was through the state church. Was through the state church, nationalism. And so we struggle today with this current thing called nationalism in America where we mix up the laws of God and the laws of our country. Now, the laws of God are good, and the laws of our country are good, or can be. But when we mix them up and we confuse the two, or we infuse the two together, and we begin to say, well, no, for God and country, and we cannot separate and see where the laws of country are for man and for self, and the laws of God are always for the, the worship of the Father and for others, then we lose sight, and we begin to fall in line with what the, the errors of the past when it comes to the church. You know, Metaxas wrote that book, Bonhoeffer, on Diedrich Bonhoeffer in Germany, and if you don't know who he is, go get that book. It'll take you about 17 hours to read it. It's about that thick, but totally worth your time. Um, you know, with the extra 17 hours you have, read Bonhoeffer by Metaxas. And he says this in there. This is what Bonhoeffer said about Hitler. He said he worshiped power while truth was a phantasm to be ignored or an illusion to be ignored, and his sworn enemy was not falsehood, but weakness. Weakness. Hitler hated weakness. He wanted power. He wanted to be the Fuhrer. He wanted to be the leader, the one that everybody looked to, 
In fact, he was called the Aryan Jesus of Germany. He was going to be the one that, like how Jesus brought so many people together from so many different regions, this is what he was going to do. And he feigned interest in Christianity because he knew the control it had on Germany at the time. And so he said all the right things to be able to get in with undiscerning Christian believers and in the whole time was waiting to make a move, right? He took Christianity and the truths of Christ, blended them with government for purposes that would ultimately suit him. And because the Christians didn't have their eyes open, because we are asleep oftentimes, they let it happen underneath them. And Bonhoeffer did have his eyes open. He saw what was happening. And he says this. It says, Bonhoeffer was already looking beyond the confessing church whose birth he had just midwifed basically just been born, the confessing church as, far as, as opposed to the state church. He saw too much compromise already. One thing was certain, the evil of Hitler could not be defeated with mere religion. He longed to see a church that had an intimate connection with Christ and was dedicated to hearing God's voice and obeying God's commands, come what may, including the shedding of blood. Now, he longed to see people sold out He called for repentance. He stood up in front of the church and said, this suffering we are enduring now that you are seeing around us as they close the businesses of Jewish men and women, as they begin to shut them out, as they begin to tell you to call on them if you see them in the streets, as they begin to kill them in the streets, as they begin to round them up. And the church was on board with all of it. Do you know that? Did you know that? The church was on board with all of it. The church was a massive help to the Nazi party and letting them know where the Jewish people were and what was happening until people started to wake up. And as Bonhoeffer early on began to speak on these things, he began to make a call that was so simple and yet falls by the wayside in Christian nationalism. It falls by the wayside. And it's this. Get on your knees and repent before God. Lay everything you have before Him and trust him. In fact, while he was in New York going to Union College in 1930, Union College was built and funded by the Rothschilds and was uh, a more contemporary, modern church. They were moving away from the things of the past. A lot of sort of what you're seeing in the church today can be accredited 90 years ago. And he's there, and he gets handed out a paper that says, Old Traditional Teachings, by this professor, and on it is repentance and the cross. That's an old traditional teaching. We're going to move on to things that are more about how to be a good citizen and and, uh, how to be a good neighbor and morals and virtues. And so in 1930s, this idea of taking the church down by watering down the message of Christ had already begun here in America, and the foothold of it was already deep in Germany. And so we're in this place now, this fun place where we feel often like the government's overstepping or God, what do I do or how do I talk to my neighbor? What decisions do I make about these controversial things going on? And so I want to take us to Luke 16 because I believe a lot of our answers are in this seemingly odd section of Scripture, especially verse 9. But as we head into this, keep in mind these words from the Apostle Mark. What does it profit a man 
to gain the whole world, but to lose his soul? What will it profit you to gain everything the world can give you, all the power, the money, the status, if you lose your soul? Luke 16. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and he asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be a manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their homes. So he began to call each of the master's debtors. He asked the first one, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. So the manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill, make it 800. Now this is pretty sketchy, right? What this guy's doing. Like, it's really smart, but it's super sketchy to the owner of the vineyard and to the master. And so you are ready, and this is Christ speaking, right? This is Jesus giving this story. So you, here comes, the, here comes the, uh, like the blow, like Jesus is about to show you why this guy's going to hell, because he's bad. And yet that doesn't happen. Let's keep reading. It says, the master commended the dishonest manager, commended him, not reprimanded, commended him. Because he had acted shrewdly, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you to use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What? <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait a minute, Jesus, all that stuff about, you know, no adultery, no stealing, no lying, the Ten Commandments, remember those. I'm allowed to cheat and lie to my master in order to, and it, you're good with that, as long as I can set up eternal dwellings? <laughs> Just to be super, super clear, Jesus is not commending the man for robbing him. He is not commending him for his dishonesty. He is commending him for his shrewdness. Now, what does that mean? What is, he, what is he actually looking at? And this, for us, is where I believe the truth of those questions I asked earlier of what do we do is found right here. Because what Jesus is commending, or the master, but it's Jesus, is commending the servant for, is that he finally took his eyes off himself for a moment, used the power he had as the manager of the master's property and gave a break and gave favor to these other people. Now, was he doing it to ultimately for his own good, right? So he'd have a place to go when the, manager, when the master fired him. But he, he used his power to help somebody else. He used his power for the first time, not for himself. You see, the reason the manager fired him is because he looked at his accounts and saw that this manager, the master fired him. I've got to change up my word. The reason the master fired him is he was using his accounts for his own pleasure. He was stealing from the master. Do you understand this? 
He was thinking about himself. He was using the power as the manager of the property to benefit only himself. And in this shrewdness, in this self-preservation act of going to these other people, he doesn't just say your debts are canceled, but he gives them a break. It says if you pay now, you can pay only this much. And what Jesus is acknowledging here, as you see, is this shrewd dealing in which he says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. Because one day it's going to be gone. And the temporary things that it can buy are going to be gone. But the eternal souls of those you become friends with last forever. So, now that you're friends with them, tell them about me. Now this is where the analogy moves away from a master of a vineyard and his manager and what he's trying to get across to his disciples. And that's this, is you will have things that are, are worldly in your possession. You will have things that are unrighteous in your possession. How do you use them? How do you use them? What's your focus? Are you using them for your power or are you using them for the glory of the Lord? You see, Jesus is more concerned about the relationships we create than the wealth that we amass. He is more concerned because in the relationship, did you know that when you create a relationship with somebody else, you are setting up a lifelong opportunity that you might have a chance to tell them who Jesus Christ is that you would have a chance to share with them something more than just a savings on their debt, but something eternal for their soul. Now, before we look at this manager and we get too, um, I don't know, judgmental of him, that he's taken the master's goods and used them for himself, let's take a minute and look at ourselves here. If Jesus is telling this story to prove a greater point, then the point that he's trying to prove is he is the master, right? And, the, and his disciples at the time, or you and I as we're reading it today, were the manager. Let me ask you something. Have you, can you say without a doubt 100% that you have taken the resources, the material resources, the, te- the talents and abilities, and the 24 hours in a day that God has given you, and you have always used them for his glory? You have always used them wisely. You have never used them for selfish gain or for sinful purposes. Can, can anybody say that 100% you've done that? You just, you've done a real quick look at your life and you're like, yeah, that's me. Nobody? nobody? See, that's what Jesus is trying to say. Is he will redeem any action, whether it is shrewd or not, when we submit to him. He redeems our actions, he redeems our time, he redeems the talent, and he redeems the money. This is what Jesus does. When we submit to his kingdom, when we submit to his way of doing things, he redeems it. In fact, he goes on to make this clear. Verse 10. So he's just told him the story about eternal dwelling places is where he ends, and then he says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is going to be dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you haven't been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? 
If you cannot handle the simple, small things, if you look at your finances and you say, I am one of those ones who has little, then God, the question for you is, do you trust God and have you been a faithful steward of what he's given you? And maybe what you have little of is not money, but it's just time. Anybody feel that way right now? You just have little time. And the idea of doing a small group or a life group or, or a class or, or volunteering, it's just I, you don't understand how busy we already are. Maybe you don't have talent. It's okay. Maybe that's where you're just looking and you say, I don't have enough talent to serve God. It's a lie. And maybe it's money. Maybe it's material possessions. I don't have enough to serve the Lord. The Lord says, if you cannot be trusted with little, how can I trust you with much? And here's what's really crazy about this is when you think about it, when you think, if only I had this, if only I got to this level, if only I made this much more and was able to do this much, then I would finally be able to serve God and be happy and not work crazy hours and all of that, right? The fact of the matter is God knows because he knows your heart. God knows that if he gives that to you, it's going to destroy you. You don't see it yet. You don't know it. You believe it's going to solve your problems. But God, in this section of Scripture, should be speaking to you and saying, what are you currently doing with what I've given you? Are you honoring me with it? Are you serving others? The power that I've given you through my Holy Spirit, are you giving it away? Are you giving it away? Or do you just keep praying that I would heal you and people that will benefit you? Or are you going out to others who will never be able to repay you and are you sharing who I am with them? Are you loving them? Are you sacrificing at the cost of your own comfort, your finances and your time and your talent? Are you being a good steward? This is the question of this chapter. And now I want to tie in here for you. Why in the world would I be looking at this when I'm talking about truth and making <laughs> decisions in our economy and wisdom and hearing from the Lord. This is why. Verse 12. If you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you a property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and you will despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon, or money. But mammon is really more than money. Mammon was life, comfort, house, everything you had apart from God. Now look at where that verse is. And remember, everything in the Bible is about context, as Jesus spoke it and as it's been given to us. Look at where that verse is. It is right in the middle of the story of the rich man and the, and the manager who is a poor steward, and then after it comes what? You know, the story of Lazarus and the rich man. The story of Lazarus and the rich man. Another story where somebody who had wealth and was given the opportunity with this poor crippled man laid at the front door of his property every day to show love and kindness, to give back to somebody who cannot pay him back. And then we get this parable from Jesus after they have both died, the great equalizer of man, 
death. And he asks him, please, just for a touch of cold water, just to soothe me. And then he begs him, send Lazarus back to tell my brothers. And the fact of the matter is, is it's too late. He chose where his wealth and his priorities were. He chose what was most important to him and what he would do with the power that was given to him as a Jewish man by God. Right now, as we're in the midst of this, there is this struggle to know what is nationalism and what is standing up for truth, the truth of the Scriptures, the truth of the Word of God. What is not caving to an ungodly government? What is being bold, right? We don't want to be like the church uh, during the time of Nazi Germany that just rolled over and let everything happen. But at the same time, when I look at the church in the New Testament and I look at the early church, I look and say, man, they didn't operate the way our country operates. So what am I supposed to do? Because I'm caught between this place that I love our country and, and I believe in our military and God sets the standards of a military and a government's job is to protect the country. But what is my job? What is my job, Lord? You're going to keep struggling to know that answer until you fully submit that you are a steward of what God has given you and not the owner. You are a steward of your time. You're a steward of the money you've made. You're a steward of the gifts and the abilities that have helped you to make that money. You're a steward of it. You don't own it. See, this is a mind shift in America where we have property rights. We own things. We're allowed to work hard and move out of our uh, socioeconomic climate and climb up into a higher one. And so often we look at our Christian religion that same way, and we, we look and we say, okay, I'm here, and I'm going to work to get here, and then I'll work to get here. And the fact of the matter is, we speak with our mouth that God is our Lord and our Savior, and yet our actions show that our comfort or our money or our time is actually our Lord and Savior. And this is why we struggle in a climate right now, because these areas of mammon are not given to the Lord. They're given to the Lord in words, but you haven't actually given them to Him. Because you're still full of fear and worry when you see a news article. You're still full of fear whenever the next thing comes out, and it fills you with fear rather than hitting your knees and praying the power of God and saying, Lord, transform our neighborhood, and what can I do, and help us be bold, and all of this stuff. We get filled with fear. And fear, fear that sets down in your soul and roots itself is a sign that you have placed mammon above the Lord. And God, Jesus said you can't serve to. And so there's three admonishments he gives here that Warren Wiersbe, a Bible commentator, says, and I'm going to close with these three. He says, I want to admo Jesus admonishes us to use our opportunities wisely. One of these days, life will end and the money you have accumulated will be gone, but the souls and the relationships you had will be eternal. So use the opportunities that have been presented before you wisely. This is a mind shift. You understand that? This is a total 
mind shift and a way of thinking that says, Lord, you got to do something in my heart because I've been a Christian for a long time, but if I'm honest with myself, I don't know that I've been a good steward with the things that you've given me. I feel like I've stewarded a little bit, like I've made sure you've gotten some of it, and I've done things when Christmas and Easter when I'm supposed to, and I've helped out when I saw that commercial about the kids in the country that is poor, and I've done these things. But the fact is, God, I, money is my God. Comfort is my God. My schedule, my day planner. Remember day planners? My calendar is my God. And you are who I worship and pray to to help me, what? To help me get to where my God is. How many times when you're praying to the Lord are you asking him for something that is not for his kingdom but is for the one that you're building? But you don't realize it. We don't realize it. It feels like you're saying super spiritual things and you're saying thy and thee and thou and you open the King James Bible and you're really going after it. But if you stop and you look at what you're praying, is it for his kingdom or is it for the one that you're building? The second admonition is to be faithful in the way we use material wealth. Luke 16, 10 through 12. Be faithful in the way you use material wealth. Now in the church, this has been so badly abused over the years that the idea of any pastor talking about money from the stage or encouraging people to be faithful in their money is looked at as a charlatan or, oh great, here they come again, tell me to give them money. Right? You can, it's okay, I know. That's why I've almost gone the opposite way to a fault of, we don't talk about it hardly at all. We don't even pass the bag anymore. Our offering is a time during our worship where we rely on the Holy Spirit. He's talking to you, whatever you give, the Lord has always sustained this place. This is his ministry. But the fact of the matter is, by not speaking about it, by continuing to keep it in the shadows, we do a great disservice to you. Because money is one of those things that will creep up on you ever, ever so slowly and ultimately take over your mind and your life and what you value as important without you ever realizing it's done it. And when God says to be careful about this, to be faithful in little so that you can have much, what he's trying to do is say, money wants to be your God. Comfort is trying to be your God every single day of your life. And I'm telling you, if you want to fight it, then change what you do with your material possessions. Not because God needs the money. I'd say even, even though we talk about the local church and God cares about the local church and you need to be invested in your local church, I'd say even, just so you know, this isn't about LifePoint and our finances, start giving somewhere else. But start giving sacrificially somewhere else. Say, God, the truth is, I don't know that I fully trust you. I don't know that I've been a steward that has been wise with the things you've given me. And I don't even know how to, honestly. It scares me to death. So help me in this. He's admonishing them. Be faithful with your material wealth. And what's his promise back? You notice that there's a second promise there? Whoever is trusted with little, he will trust you with much. There's a promise there. I will trust you. You will be somebody who I will give much to. And that, that, that's a scary thing. 
Because if there's anybody in here who, who has ever had really great wealth, you know how tempting it is to begin to rely on that wealth. Honestly, I can look at every single one of you in here, and we have great wealth when you look at the other 7.5 billion people on this earth. And you already know how tempting it is, don't you? It'd be a completely different message on these verses if I was in Guinea, which right now is going through some really crazy stuff. Afghanistan, China. The fact is, we have wealth already given to us. How are you doing stewarding it? And lastly, but not leastly, the Lord admonishes us to be wholly devoted to God and to be single-minded. To be single-minded. Lord, I realize that the devil is at my door crouching like a lion ready to attack. And I realize that these things in my life are things that are drawing me away from you. So would you take these from me? I submit them before you, God. I submit these things before you. Would you take them from me that I might not be caught up in them, that I might not be lost by them, that I would not let the fear of the world and what is going on in my country dictate what I do and how I think, but that I would be so solely focused on you and single-minded on your kingdom that I will hear you when you speak to me. You ever wonder why sometimes it feels like you pray and pray for things that are righteous and good and you just don't hear anything from God? You ever wonder that? Man, I've been praying and praying for this and I know this is a righteous thing. I know this is something for his kingdom. This isn't a selfish thing. Why why am I not just getting clarity in this issue that I really just am asking him for clarity on? And I want to propose to you something. In my life, and I can tell you experientially, the times that I feel that God is not answering me, it's because the thing that I'm praying about, I have not submitted to him. Oh, well, yes, I did. <laughs> yes, I did, God, remember? 99, I submitted it to you, I remember. You remember when I submitted it to you. And <laughs> I feel the Holy Spirit say, you submitted it to me in words, but in your heart, it is still greater than my power in you. And you see, the Lord can't answer even this deep spiritual question if I am not single-minded, if my, if my values, if my devotion is still split between God and mammon, comfort and money, then he can give me truth and hand it to me on a platter. And you know what I'll do? I will take it and squander it because I won't be single-minded. I will take that truth and then I will do this. I will funnel it through my mammon, my, my money and comfort side of me that I worship, and then I'll funnel it through the Christianese side of me that has studied and knows God and knows the Bible. And what's it say in Proverbs? To not put pearls before swine. The wisdom of God's Holy Spirit in your life is pearls, and he is going to wait until you are ready to receive them. And so rather than be upset at him, rather than say he doesn't hear me, he doesn't listen, he's not really there, examine yourself. Examine your heart, your decisions, your life. Where are you at between God and mammon? 
And that's what I want to close with here today. As we prepare to take communion, as we come before the Lord, this question, there we go, is where where am I at with you, Lord? Honestly, where am I at? You know, we held a Financial Peace University class at the beginning of the year. You know how many people signed up? I think you know now. Zero. Zero. Which was encouraging to me and the executive pastor, Tim, and our other pastors. It's like, perfect. We have a church of over 500 regularly attending adults, and none of them need help with their finances. This is going to be a banner year for the church. We're going to be able to plant that sports field we want to plant and open the ministry after school thing we want to do. I mean, it's, I mean, just do the simple math of how many people attend our church, and all of them are doing good with their finances. And if they're doing good with their finances, obviously they're giving because they're putting God first in their life. And whether they're giving here or other charities, we'll see it. Nope, not quite how it went, huh? Again, there's, this isn't guilt or shame. In fact, if you were to give out of guilt or shame, I would encourage you right now, don't you dare. Don't. Keep it. Jesus says what? I want you to give as a cheerful giver. And if you need to go before the Lord in prayer for a week or a month or however long it takes until you have the joy of the Lord when you give of your time or your possessions, take the time to do it. Do not give out of guilt or what any words that have been spoken. Go before God and say, would your spirit lead me in this? I see that it is truth. In a world where I don't know if what I'm reading is truth, I don't know if what I'm reading is actually written by the person it says, I can be certain that when I open this book, it has stood the test of time. The words that have been written in it have stood the test of time. The men and women who have followed it have stood the test of time. When the principles written in this book are actually enacted in a community, when the people serve others and love others before themselves, it has stood the test of time. Every time. The only time people who follow these words fell is when they stop looking to the Lord as their guidance and their strength. And then in that case, the words never actually fell. We walk away from it. Let's bow our heads. Father, lead us in this season, Lord. I'd say protect this country, but I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means, God. I don't, I don't know how you protect us right now. We're so disjointed. Your church is so disjointed. Maybe that's where it starts, God, is bring unity in your body. And for us, that would start here by coming to grips with what we serve, who, who we serve. And Lord, I just pray on the hearts of those who are listening here today that you would reveal to them what is truly the master they're serving in their life. And then, God, just as you do with all of us, just in kindness and gentleness, would you lead us into truth? Or there is never a critical spirit from you. It is always, you always show me things where I am being a poor steward in such a loving way, in such an inviting way. I pray you would do that here this morning. Let's take a moment where you're at before we partake of communion together and 
there's some things that you would like to get right before the Lord, if there's anything that you just want to meditate on, do that now. As we come to the supper of the Lamb, I encourage you to abstain if you don't have a relationship with Christ. And if that's you here today, but you want to have a relationship with Christ, then you come forward at the end. We'll have prayer partners, pastors, elders. <laughs> There'll be people up here. Just come forward. If you're watching from home, we have one of our pastors watching the live feed. Type something in there, do a private message. But if you want to give your life to the Lord today, there is no greater thing that we could have shared with you than that. If this is a commitment you have made, well then Jesus gave us this to remember him by. As he sat with his disciples, he broke bread, and he told them, this is my body. And then he gave thanks. So Father, we thank you for the Son that he came down in the form of the very creation that he made and he took upon himself the punishment of sin that I deserved. And we take and partake of that body now. In Jesus' name, amen. And then it says that he took the cup and he told them that this is the covenant, this is the blood of a new covenant. This was his blood. And he gave thanks. Father, I thank you for the righteous blood of Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord, that he took his power and then imparted it to those around him, gave it away, served others. I thank you, Lord, that I get to be a beneficiary of this blood. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.